If you would remain standing after for a word of prayer. James 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yea, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or make yourself an enemy with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, at least ask that You would put Your Word to us now. Do not let me step back from it or, or, or refrain from it, but rather step out of the way of it and let it come through the way You need us to. Hear it the way we need to receive it and help us have anointed ears. Heavenly Father, may the words in our mouths, the meditations in our hearts, and the thoughts in our minds be acceptable in Your sight. But more than that, Heavenly Father, may Your Word go forth and accomplish what You've desired this morning. Amen. You may be seated. This is a contextual sermon, and I'm going to put it in its proper context as we go along. James is very consistent. And one of the things you'll read in all of Scripture is that when the writer sent an epistle or wrote a psalm, well, everything except a psalm, a proverb or anything like that, the prophets and all those books, they did not have chapters. They did not have verse markings. Those came along in this, uh, since the time of Christ. There was no chapter and verse to give us the clarity like we're in James 4. This was just the book of James and this far into the book because it was a continuous letter, if you will, or an epistle from James to the churches. And so if we look at chapter 4 without looking at it in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to get a little bit of the picture, but we miss the connections that he's already established in the first three chapters. This chapter pulls from what we've already been talking about. So you might hear a couple of things that sound a little bit similar in idea and concept because it's building. And this one puts a pretty strong foundation and uh, I would say the ground floor on it. So here we go. I have a question for you this morning and, and it's an important one. If you were to look across your life and think about the different things that you've done that matter to you, and you wanted to think about going forward from here, what is one thing that you could say you really want? Whether it's really want to happen, to possess, or to know, what is one thing? One, And I don't mean just like one of the many things. I mean, what is the biggest thing that you really desire to see happen or to own or to experience or to be a part of? Uh, is there anything like that 
that registers in your meter that says this. Yes, everything else is good, but if this is more important than all those other things. So in other words, it's what you really, really want deep down. In other words, what burns through you that you would work nonstop to get it? And what is it that gives you unrest when it's not present? Or when it's not obtainable? Or when it's gone from you? What is that? Now, I want to share with you that that which we really want has its source somewhere. And that source is what we're going to talk about this morning. In the earlier chapters in James, he's talking about different works from different kinds that one person out of your mouth blesses and curses. He says one spring can't have two kinds of water come out of it. So also with us, we can't have two desires that are number one in our life. The one big thing that we want is going to trump everything else. It's higher than everything else. And that's that thing that causes us unrest, anxiety, disquiet inside, no peace if it's missing, or, or trying to attain it or achieve it. Some people it's fame, prosperity, uh, status, relationship, financial. Um, some it's, uh, re- if you will, uh, the relationship with God. Some it's uh, the, the health. But there's something... Something that drives you more than anything else. And that which does is the spring of source. There's not two number one things coming out of you. And you might say, well, I have a lot of things like that. But there's one. There's one big one that reigns in your life. And I share this with you because it's the way we're built. We have, and I don't mean something you're obsessed about. I don't mean an obsession that as soon as you obtain it, it goes away. It's something that even after you've obtained it, you're glad you did. Or something you've worked for and you're so thankful that now it's present in your life. Something that without it, life pales in comparison to life with it. And I want to share with you that James is talking about this because this idea of what we really want tells us the source of our desire and our relationship with the world around us and our relationship with God. And you might say, well, no, mine doesn't do that. But bear with me. I think you will see it does. One of the things James does say, and it's in no uncertain terms, no uncertain way does he say this, it's clear, that you cannot bear good fruit from God unless you're connected with God. An unbeliever will not bear godly fruit. They cannot, because that's from God. And all the giftings and that fruit, which is sown, which is righteous fruit, only comes from a believer properly connected in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that stuff happens, right? That's a question, right? Alright, okay. Just want to make sure you're with me that you can't bear God's fruit to the world if you don't have God within you to do it. You can't manufacture godliness. Only God can provide it through His Holy Spirit within you. Some people can fake faith. 
You'll see them, they'll have a smile on Sunday and a frown Monday through Saturday. They'll come to church as an obligation to show people that they love God and be accepted by them, but through the week they don't show anything worthwhile toward God or toward the kingdom of God. That's fake faith. People who practice that are actually unbelievers because they have no fruit. Now this is what James says, and don't miss this. All believers bear fruit and they sow it. They sow the fruit. This is what we learned over the last couple weeks. That faith without works is dead. You're going to have something going along with your faith or you don't have any. And that's really important to understand so that when we ask for something, we understand that we're asking from a place of connection with God. But if we do not ask from a place of question with God, we're going to ask for it from a source that is not God. And those sources are inside of us or externally pushing down on us that create this tremendous internal conflict. And those sources of eternal conflict are quite clear and spelled out for us in James. The first source of internal conflict is uncontrolled desire. He says that when he says that in verse 1, do, you, do the wars and fights, don't they come from you from desires for pleasure that are warring within? Uncontrolled desire. You're warring because you can't get what you want and you desire it. So there's a waging war. And that war can be internal. But let me show this also. It can be in a church. And this is who James was dealing with. It was a church where some of the members were unbelievers, but they're trying to tell the believers how things should be done without having a connection to God. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Because now you have a, a, a church where people say, I believe in God, but they don't act like it. And people who do, but, and they want to please God. And these folks are trying to tell them this is what God says. And these folks are wanting to hear from God. And, and these folks aren't even really saying what God says. So there's that war that goes on between spiritual and carnal mindsets. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's a quite simple statement, without having one. You actually have to have the relationship for it to exist. You can't just say, I believe in God and Jesus and that's the relationship. No, it actually has to be a relationship. When you marry someone, you don't say, well, I'm married and, you know, and we live in different countries. But I have the relationship because I know who they are, I believe in them. And I believe we're married and have a relationship and never spend any time or grow the relationship. A relationship is a dynamic, non-static thing. It's always evolving, growing, hopefully maturing, but always moving in a direction. So it is with a relationship with Jesus Christ. In a church... There's going to be believers and unbelievers all confessing that they believe in God, but that is not a relationship. Belief in God is that you believe God exists, that He sent His Son. Great, but even the devil knows that. Belief does not mean conviction. You won't stake your life on Jesus being your Lord and Savior and resurrection unless it's actually a reality inside you. It just won't happen. You know why? Because it's not a conviction. People won't die 
for a belief, but they will for a convicted belief. Something they know that they know is true. Especially when it comes to Jesus Christ, who will deliver you from all persecution and unrest. Eventually. So, that's the first kind of internal conflict uh, or source is uncontrolled desire. He goes on to say that the second source of internal conflict is unfulfilled desire. And verse 2 says we lust or we want something and we don't have it. And that creates conflict. Quite simple. I want I don't have it. I've got to do something to get it. Simple conflict. Not necessarily really hard to understand, but it is a source of conflict. And when you get it on a bigger scale, that's where it becomes a problem. I remember one time a church having a very large argument when the pastor said that he wanted to remove the uh, chandelier and put in a new fixture there that provided better lighting. And the church got upset and said, we can't remove that chandelier until we have better lighting. And he said, isn't that what I just said? And they said, no, you said you want to remove our chandelier and then get better lighting. We want better lighting and remove the chandelier. And they're arguing over whether it should be and or or. Or this and then that. Or that and this at the same time. And that's what they were arguing about. And people got mad. Really dumb. Right? It's crazy, but they wanted what they wanted. They didn't understand that the chandelier was a problem. They needed to be resolved at the same time. But you couldn't replace it and it still be there. So that's what the argument was about. And that's what, see, people want what they want. And when they want it, and someone else wants something, and it appears to be in conflict, things don't mesh. Here's how it works for us individually. We want something that doesn't seem to line up with what's healthy for us. Or we want something that's healthy for us, but we also want something that's not, and they're not the same direction for our life. That creates inner conflict. Because you don't know what to choose. Anybody ever face those situations? I've, this is a good idea to get this if you're thinking about a purchase, but that money could be better used over here. I want this, but I need this. Anybody ever got the want instead of the need? Mm-hmm. Of course we have. We're human. We do that sometimes. It's not healthy always, but that conflict is from wanting something that we do not have. The word in, in the Old Testament that, that uh, comes out every now and then is the word covet. We covet things. We desire things that we don't have and it settles unrest because we feel like our life is incomplete without them. That's an inner conflict. Another one, source of internal conflict is selfish desire. And James says that we, in verse 3 says we do not receive when we ask that we might because we ask to spend it on our pleasures. Now this word pleasure is uh, the word hedonia. Not fredonia. (laughs) Not the little town here in Paducah. But hedonia. Where the word hedonism comes from. Or hedonistic. Hedonistic is a word for pleasure. Or or ecstasy. 
And it's where uh, we begin to line up with our lusts and our selfish impulses that come along. And the conflict that that creates is that that part of us is never satisfied. It always wants more and more and more. It's unsatisfiable part of us is that lust or that hedonistic side of ourselves. And once it gets tickled, it has to have more. And when it wants more, it's going to do it at the expense of, of logic. And that creates internal conflict. You ever heard someone either in a large corporation or, or in, even in, in churches where there's a desire to have a building project and they say, well, we've got to have a nice place for, for comfort for our you know, central air and comfort pews and, and a nice place to have, a, if you're doing a great big project, a nice place where we can get snacks and desserts. And then someone will say, yes, that's all good. But we also need to think about helping people integrate into the church and, and, and making an outreach center for the homeless and the destitute. They go, yes, we need to do that. But if we're not comfortable, we're not going to want to do that. And so those folks uh, won't come if we're not comfortable here. And so they won't feel comfortable. Either. You know, it's that kind of logic. It just doesn't make sense, right? And that's what happens inside of ourselves. If you really think about how you think, and your own logic, you'll see whether or not it's derived from your selfish desires or from godly principles. I think I've talked with you about uh, ontic and noetic thinking. Ontic is the way someone thinks and noetic is to think about the way you think. So, a lot of folks just think. But is there a part of you that says, why am I thinking like this? Where's this thought coming from? What does it mean that I think this way? To think about that is to begin to understand your sources of where your mind's going, where it's come from and what you're trying to do. But if, you, if you're going throughout the day and you don't ever check your head, you might need your head checked. Because your, your mind's just going to run rampant every which way. And you say, oh, no, no, I'm really focused. Yes, you are really focused. If you are that way, I'm not. I scatter when I think. But if you're really focused, bless you. But is it godly focus? Or is it you're focused on what you want and you don't ever consider it's what God wants? Again, think about why you're doing what you do throughout the day. And again, what do you really want? Really? What is it? What is that one thing? Another part of what James is saying here when he says you lust and don't have, you murder and can covet and cannot obtain, fight and war, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you don't get it because you want to spend it on pleasure. Here is how a lot of people think. And if this is part of your thinking pattern, you're going to see why you have trouble asking God for things the right way. There is a lot of entitlement in our country. If you don't know what I mean by entitlement, it's really simple. It's when someone says, it's my life, I can do it however I want. It's my body, I can do it to it, whatever I want. It's my money, I can spend it however I want. It's my family, and I'll treat them the way I choose, and you have no say. It's my job, leave yourself out of it. You know, it's my whatever. 
But I want to share something with you. If it is your body, where did you get it from? Who did you purchase it from to be yours? And how long are you going to be in it? It's a simple question. It's my body. I can do whatever I want. Where'd you get it? At the old body store? No. You didn't. You were born with it. This is what we forget. You are not your body. You are the you, the mind, the spirit, and the soul inside of a body. You're a spirit with a body, not a body. One day, that body you're in isn't going to work. It's going to fall apart and it's going to return back to dust. Sooner than later in terms of the next hundred years. None of us are going to need these bodies in a hundred years. But if you want to keep yours and say it's yours for a hundred years from now, I want to know what you're going to be doing with it. Or is it on loan? Or is it, does your body belong to God? It's my body. I can do what I want with it. No. Your body's a gift to you from God. It houses the Spirit which He created to put in it. What you do with your body is your gift to God. Not what you want to do for yourself. That's the thinking. That's the hedonistic or pleasure thinking that I can do what I want with myself anytime I want and you can't do anything about That's called rebellion. It's also called uh, making yourself an enemy of God. And a lot of folks... Oh, goodness. You ever heard a teenager? And, and if you're a teenager today, or if you're still acting like a teenager, um, or say these things, it's my life. Leave me alone. Any adults in here ever said that? You know what we're saying? Mind your own business. Don't hassle me. Don't give me a problem. And what we're saying though is it's my it is not your life. You didn't give it to you. God did. You did not give yourself life. If you don't believe that God gave you life, I'll tell you this, your parents did. Two people came together and you have life because of that. Basic elements of life. And that life is what you are living. And it's not yours. How you spend it is again your gift to God and the world around you. If you live it selfishly, it means you've come to take and steal and destroy this planet and its resources, which in John 10 says that's what the enemy does. It comes to take, steal, and destroy. I've seen a lot of people do that. Ruining our environment, making it ugly, and destroying things without concern or regard for the world or the people in it. And these folks go, where's God? Why didn't He care? Why didn't He listen? Well, it's your life and your body. You take care of it, says God, right? It's all yours. You do it. There comes a time when even that person who has that hard, stubborn heart says, God, I need you. And God's going to go, you always have. Now you're humbled a little bit. Now you're calling on me, but are you calling on me because you want it for yourself? Are you calling on me to spend it on your own desires and your own health and your own body rather than having a relationship with me where you begin to focus on the kingdom and me? 
And, and, and then we, we want to argue with that and say, no, 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 God, that's not how it works. Because God, you know, health's important. Without health, you don't have anything. And it's true, if you don't have health, you, you can't do much. But what God is saying is, seek first me, my kingdom, my righteousness, and I will add the rest in. But we do it the other way around. I want what I want, and maybe God will fit in. I don't understand that thought, but it's what it's true. And here's what happens. Folks like that want what they can get from God. Truly. They want His love, His provision, security, hope, you name it. But they do not want God Himself. They want what God can offer. A lot of people want the get-out-of-hell-free card without having God set them free. From hell. And that's the truth. Why is that? Because we're afraid to acknowledge that God is God and our lives are simply a vapor. We're not here very long. And it's sad to think about, but at any moment, our life can be done. Very true. Can you imagine on January 12th or 13th when Brother Joe Henson is on the cruise ship thinking I'm having a great time and all of a sudden he has this pain. And, and for us, all we have to do is go to the doctor and get it checked out, but Joe's in the middle of the ocean. Now, I haven't talked to Joe about this, but I'm sure he would concur that if he doesn't get to the hospital, he's not going to make it. But all of a sudden... There's a need for God there. God, if you don't get me there, if I don't get there, and you don't somehow make a way, this ain't going to happen. There's a sense of desperation when you really, really are desperate for God. A sense of, God, if you don't do something, it's over. A finality to our lives when we begin to look at God face to face and say, God, truly, this could end now. And all this, my life, it's my body, it's my money, ends in an instant. And all you've done is been self-focused. What can God do with that? Not much. As a matter of fact, in verse 6 where it says He resists the proud, it doesn't just mean He resists the proud. The word resist there is He makes war against the proud. He has a battle array lined up as in an army to attack the proud. God has all these... And now let me tell you something. This is how war works, alright? First of all, you try negotiation. And that's what God does. Come to me and I'll give you rest. You'll be peace for you. I'll give you peace like you've never known. My peace I will give to you, says Jesus. Not like the world gives. A peace that passes any understanding you could ever have and the world can't take it away. He negotiates. That doesn't work. He sends out the artillery, a little bit of foot soldiers at first, or the ground, and, and begins to get people in your business a little bit. Starting to infiltrate and say, hey, you know, you're not living like you should. Jesus really needs to be your Lord. What's going on here? You're not living for God. You're running the wrong way. Your life's messing up. You need to change. And you, and you go, I can knock these little horse soldiers out of my life. I don't need to listen to them. There's no problem. And so he starts sending bigger stuff. And bigger stuff. And finally, 
you come face to face with your immortality and you go, God, I need you. And he's going, I know. Why didn't you? I sent your foot soldiers. I sent you my son. I sent your prophets. I sent the Bible. I tried to speak to you in song and prayer. And you wouldn't listen. Now I've got the army riled up against you and your life's about to go from you. Now you pray? But are you going to pray because you're afraid? Or are you going to pray because you want me? Do you understand? The most difficult prayer to pray even in times of great distress, is God, I need You more than I need Your deliverance. I need You more than I need Your provision. Because I can go without Your provision, but I can't go without You. And so when we ask God for things, are we asking out of the fact that we want Him in those things? That one thing we really, really want, it might be cure for Something. It might be financial blessing. It might be restoration of something. But do we want God before that? Does that matter? The desire for the world wipes out our desire for God. It overrules it, if you will supersedes it, our ideas about God. So, if you understand what James is saying here, if you desire the things of the world, you do not desire the things of God. If you want what God provides but not God, you set yourself up as in opposition to God. what verse 5 says. The Spirit in you yearns jealously. That the Spirit within you, that God has placed in you, yearns for God. And it will not tolerate things that are not of God. But if you don't have that Spirit in you, the Spirit of the world that's in you, that's created by sin and, and selfish desire, also yearns that you do not have that relationship with God because it wants what it wants when it wants it. It's again why he calls us adulteresses, because friendship with this world sets us up in an opposition to God. So if you want to be a friend of the world and desire what the world provides without having God, you have made yourself literally an enemy to God. I wouldn't want that for you. But thank God, it says in verse 6, as far as we've been doing this the wrong way, God's grace is greater. Do you understand that? That as much as we've resisted and denied and pushed away God, God hasn't walked away. He hasn't called out the bomb squad to blow you off the face of the earth. He hasn't smited you and He could have. His patience is leading you to Him. That's what His desire is, that you come to Him. Do you understand? God is giving greater grace than the greater sin that you keep bringing up by your selfishness and desires. That's why God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, and He's got greater grace. So the moment when you say, God, I need You, He says, here I am. 
And James, James just wants us to do one thing when we hear these verses. And I, I, it's just simple too. It's to repent. To say, God, I've been wanting everything but You. Or maybe I've been wanting You somewhere down the line, but my greatest desire has, and when I answered, what do I really, really want? Was it, was not You. Was not Your Son. Was not Your Kingdom. I was focused on the world around me. Family, job, provision, security, health. God, those things are not bad, but they shouldn't be first. And I repent because I was blindsided and short-sighted that I didn't see I needed You. So I repent. I forsake those choices before You. And I choose You. And then, James wants us to do one thing simple. And say, Jesus, You are Lord. God, You are the most merciful High Father. Your mercy endures forever and I need it. Please come to me and show me the right way to walk before You. That when I ask for things, it brings great delight to Your heart to do them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, I ask that our hearts would line up with You. That our requests would line up with the way You desire our life to go in Your Word and Your Spirit within us, Heavenly Father. When it dwells there, would would seek Your heart. For a long time, Heavenly Father, we've... uh, been complacent. We settled. We said, I can do this and that. And the this is what I want to do. And the and that was adding you on top of it. But Heavenly Father, let us turn that around this morning and say, God, we were wrong to put you second. You are first. And these other things come later, somewhere down the scale. But our relationship with you, Heavenly Father, if we haven't put that first, forgive us. We turn from that mindset and that thinking and that internal self and desires and selfishness that has said that self-preservation is more important than your relationship. For Heavenly Father, it doesn't make sense for us to think that we can not preserve ourselves in a world that's trying to destroy us. And yet you say we don't have to worry about that. You have taken care of our needs. And you will be there and supply every last need when our lives line up with you. So Heavenly Father, help us repent for where our lives haven't done that. that We may come humbly before you and find the grace that helps in time of need. In the time when we won't need to turn our life over to you and say, You are Lord. Even in my choices, Heavenly Father, You are Lord and You are first. Until then, Heavenly Father, until that day comes that that becomes our reality, challenge us and help us be one with You. Amen.